All right, hey folks, 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 calm down, calm down. We've done this before, all right? Let's not get the jitters now. Act like you've been there before, all right? Look alive. People used to say that more. Look alive. What are you, out to lunch? Look alive. Out to lunch. What do you got, toys in the attic? Look alive. You out to lunch or something? We had all these sayings for people that probably were having true psychological disorders, but we had funny sayings. That guy's got toys in the attic. He's out to lunch. Eh, should be in the nut house. The nut house? How insensitive can you be? He's got toys in the attic. He's a little, you know, and then you put your finger to your ear and you do the wind up. Are people doing that as much? Do you put your finger to your ear and then you start to wind it clockwise? Or do you go counterclockwise for the look who's crazy pantomime? Hey, look who's out to lunch. Always nutty. Cute little phrases for who probably had intense ADHD or anxiety or depression. Mm, You got the blues, huh? You got them? Well, get back on the horse. That's the pep talk. Get back on the horse. I'm on the horse. And the blues are not so blue anymore. You just get used to whatever you're facing. I think that's life, right? Hits you hard and then you succumb to it. It hits you hard like a Mike Tyson jab to the face. No, that actually knocks you out. So hits you hard like a Peter McNeely jab to the face. Anybody? Peter McNeely? I think that was Mike's first fight when he got out of prison and just beat the shit out of this guy for about 12 seconds before his trainer threw in the towel. That was what we call wasted pay-per-view money. A Peter McNeely. Would I get in the ring with Peter McNeely? Sure. Would I get in the ring with Mike Tyson? No. Would Peter McNeely get in the ring with Mike Tyson? The answer was no, but they sold a lot of pay-per-view and tickets. That was such a big night. Oh my goodness. You remember Mike Tyson fights? Shit. What would you cheer for though? Did you want the quick knockout or did you want to get your money's worth and see a few rounds? Because a lot of those Tyson fights, they were over quick. You knew some weird shit was about to go down. Because that dude definitely had toys in the attic. He was out to lunch. And his opponents often would not look alive. Or often, often. I guess I've been mispronouncing often. I've been dropping that hard T. Apparently, we're not supposed to. It's often. O-F-T-E-N, drop the T. Most of you know that, right? Often. Often. All right, still learning to speak at age 41. Still living at my mom's at age 41. But I'm thinking, let me give you a loose estimate. Eh, maybe late June, early July. I'm back at my house. So now it's like an Airbnb, but everything's familiar because it's the house I grew up in. It's like a museum of my life. I go back, thumb through an old photo album get all emotional, and then close the album and get back to my current life. Isn't that what photo albums are? If you had a dysfunctional family, you open one up, oh, what's this, 1988, and you close it real quick. Oh, yeah, let's keep that in the album, on the shelf, collecting dust. Yeah, no need to thumb through that. Straighten your tie, splash some cold water on your face, slap yourself across the face. Look alive. I'm good. I'm good. When you stay at your mom's, you realize a lot of things have changed, but some things haven't. There are still toiletries and cosmetics on the shelves that have never been thrown away because they haven't been used up. They have expired, though, many years ago. She has, my mom, resourceful, 
like almost a Great Depression mindset of you don't throw things away. You don't even respect or honor expiration dates. You just keep them on the shelf until you might need them one day. She has a liquid ivory soap with the old logo. I don't even know if you could picture the new ivory soap logo, but the old logo in this big white bottle and it has the date on it. It says 1982 and I threw it away. I actually threw it away and it mysteriously made its way back to the shelf. What that means is my mom went through the garbage, found it and put it back on the shelf. Like she's about to use some liquid ivory soap from 1982. And I hope she doesn't. It would probably destroy your skin. It would probably burn through your skin. There's a witch hazel in the bathroom I'm using. What's witch hazel, by the way, right? How many people my age are even buying witch hazel? I guess it's a skin astringent of some sort. But there's a witch hazel that looks like it's from the Industrial Revolution in this house, and she ain't throwing that away. It expired in June of 1963. It is still, I can't make this stuff up. I can't make this stuff up. It is still on the shelf. There's a deodorant called Sterling English. That's really not a brand ever, but there's a deodorant called Sterling English, and I took off the top, a moth flew out, and it was just this glassy coat of fuzz. Just like Moss Man, the old He-Man character. Was there a Moss Man or did I dream that? You could tell I was only kind of into He-Man. But there might have been a Moss Man character. And that Moss feeling on Moss Man, that's English Sterling or Sterling English deodorant. That's in the bathroom. I'm going to throw it away tonight. Guess what? It'll be back on the shelf tomorrow. She's monitoring what I'm throwing away. She can't declutter. She can't. And you know what else we have in this house as I observe it right now because I don't have anything to talk about today? Uh, she's got decorative plates. Anybody out there? Parents have decorative plates. Grandparents with decorative plates. Ain't a damn person my age buying a decorative plate. In every room, there's a tasteful, classy, decorative plate. That means there's art on the plate and it might be hung on the wall or it might be in its own wooden holder fancy wooden holder there's a few things to let you know we're at grandma's house like if you didn't know who lived here and i just said come in walk around i think within 17 seconds you'd be like oh grandma's house yeah grandma's house you need some witch hazel of course not is that a decorative plate of a family looking into the night sky on a bridge it is it is let me look around i'm doing this podcast in a room we call the den isn't it funny how families name their rooms? That's the playroom. That's the dining room. That's the sunroom. That's our den. And then some people don't call it the same room. So when you say, where are you? And someone goes, I'm in the solarium. You go, we don't have a solarium. I'm in the coat room. What the fuck is a coat? Where's the coat room? Shinny, where are you? And my wife will scream, I'm in the sunroom. I'm like, we don't, we don't have a sunroom. Maybe we don't call it that. Where are you? I know this to be the den. I'm in a den right now. So I'm just going to look around and tell you what I see. And you'll pretty much surmise that, oh, oh, yeah, you're in grandma's room. Bunch of grandkids in framed photos. Gotcha. Bunch of Jewish art. Gotcha. A pencil drawing of a Tommy Hilfiger cologne that I did in 1998 because I signed it. Josh, 1998. And a pine cone that I drew with pencil in a frame, like a beautiful frame. That you would have for like a Matisse or a Picasso, but a pine cone that I did in pencil in 1998 in the most beautiful frame still in the den. We got diplomas framed. We got, and I'm not exaggerating, probably 11 indoor potted plants. 
eight of them real, probably three fake. I don't know. All the albums, all the psychology books, an old Nintendo box, all the board games, including the original Guess Who. By the way, the original Guess Who, a lot of white people. Not a lot of women. There's five women in the original Guess Who. I'm talking about Claire, Anita, Susan. I don't have it in front of me. I'm just going off the dome. And a lot of upset looking men. Please tell me you've seen the new Guess Who. Because the new Guess Who is diverse. You got different ethnicities, different backgrounds. You could even flip it on the other side and superhero Guess Who. Plenty of girls. Plenty of guys. Actually, all genders in the new Guess Who. The old Guess Who. The women look depressed. They look like they're out to lunch. The guys look like they got the blues. A lot of the guys look like they have toys in the attic. I don't know why. Who made the original Guess Who? Why no smiles? There's no one smiling. And I play it with my daughter and I tell her, you know, this is what we played when I was young. So I actually like this version better. Isn't nostalgia weird? We like shit from when we were younger for no reason. The new Guess Who's better, but I don't like it. I like my old, depressed, chauvinistic Guess Who. We get trapped in our childhood nostalgia. And then we convince the Utes. Did you say Ute? You're damn right. That, hey, this is what I played when I was little. Fun, yeah? Stratomatic baseball? Duck hunt? Chinese checkers? The original guess who? But I'm also open to the other argument that everything new and improved and modern is better. You could tell me that. Like, is the new Little Mermaid, which I might see, better? Maybe it is. I mean, honestly, if you were able to put that up against My Little Mermaid, it's probably better, right? The graphics, the acting, the music, it's probably a little better, but you're not going to get people my age to admit it's better. Any remake is for the kids to enjoy. It's not for the adults to go, you know what? I'm ready to advance my tastes, and this is better. No, no adult has ever enjoyed a remake, and everything's a remake now. We've run out of ideas. We now have a movie about Tetris, the maker of Tetris. We've totally run out of ideas, and that's... I think that's why AI is about to creep into the world of entertainment and just blow the roof off the motherfucker, George Plimpton. Not George Plimpton. I meant to say George Clinton. (laughs) George Clinton tear the roof off the motherfucker. The P-Funk George Clinton. George Plimpton was the great journalist, the embedded journalist, who once did a training camp with the Detroit Lions, and I tried to read the book, but it was a little boring, but I respect George Plimpton, and so should you. But AI, there we go. Oh, I almost lost that thought. I knew it was... Uh, see, AI should be doing the podcasts. You wouldn't have flawed human brains like mine that go, what was I talking about? What was I saying? Yeah, AI is about to start writing scripts. Maybe they already have. And the stories are going to be better. It's just going to work. I'm done resisting. ChatGPT is AI in the classroom. It's where students turn in work that they didn't do. And it's undetectable and it's plagiarism, but it's not really something I could just throw into turnitin.com or Google and say, hey, you cheated. And it's happened already. Okay, it's happened already. I've had students use it, but what am I going to do? Suspend you, expel you, arrest you, maybe teach you a lesson. They're not admitting to it. It's not like when you catch a student cheating, they go, you know what? You got me. I learned a lesson. Won't happen again, Mr. Rosenberg. Thanks. Pals, they extend their hand for a nice slow motion handshake. Yeah, pals. No, most of the time when you catch a kid cheating, it's what? Me? No, no, that's me. That's my work. I did it. I did all that. I'm like, what? You used the word anti-disestablishmentarianism in your lead. I don't think it's your work, but 
you always have to ask yourself, do I want to fight this battle? Am I going to fight ChatGPT? Hey, teachers across America, are we fighting this? Or are we just so immediately conquered? And guess what, teachers? Some of y'all, some of y'all are using it too. And I know this for a fact. For a fucking fact. Look how mad I am. See, I'm not too mad when it's students. Those are 15, 16, 17-year-olds. All right, obviously, they're looking for shortcuts. A lot of them make mistakes. A lot of them cheat. We know that. Happens in all schools. I mean, they're learning moments, teachable moments, but still, it doesn't really make me so upset. But teachers? Teachers? Are y'all lesson planning with AI yet? At the high school I work at, there's a tradition where staff members exchange gratitude cards and it feels good. You get a few cards that say, hey, thanks for being a great coworker. Love you. And I got one from a coworker that was so wonderful. It was so beautifully crafted. It was so nice. It actually made me a little verklempt. It got me a little choked up. It was so nice. And then I saw him and I said, great letter. And then I just said, chat GPT. And he went still stone faced. He just looked at me like <gasps> caught. And he still said, no, it was, it was from the heart. And I was like, you chat GPT to gratitude letter. I guess that's fine. I guess I have to adapt to the machines ruling our world. But yeah, when we keep doing the Little Mermaid every 10 years or American Gladiators is back or Aladdin's back, all these things are back. We just keep bringing them back. We do need AI. It's sad. There's a writer's strike going on. I think it's still going on because a lot of these big moguls are unwilling to pay them. They're like, no, you're replaceable with robots right now. Not in 10 years, but right now. This writer's strike sucks if you're a Saturday Night Live fan or a fan of any network TV. Actually, maybe it doesn't suck. Maybe most people are just like, you know what? I'm streaming what I want to stream. I'm not even noticing that there's a writer's strike in Hollywood, but pay the writers. There you go. And that's the point of my podcast today, folks. I want to really encourage the big corporations on Comedy Central and MTV and these channels that probably don't exist, but maybe they do. Start paying your writers. Hey, Nickelodeon, VH1, Bravo, start paying your writers. They deserve it. But just like any group of underpaid people, I mean, isn't this classic economics? The people who have the money and are unwilling to spend the money on the talent or the employees, they probably believe that you're not worth it. They probably believe that their business can run just fine with replacements, people that are willing to take less. Capitalism, man, it's got an ugly stink to it, doesn't it? But it's obvious. Like if I was a writer on, let's say, Family Guy or The Simpsons, I think The Simpsons is still on and I'm on strike right now. And I'm like, they cannot write another episode without me and my friends as we're picketing around Hollywood. Actually, I don't know if they're picketing. I just picture... That's what a writer's strike might look like. They cannot write another episode of The Simpsons without us. Yes, they can. There's a college freshman right now in Iowa that is capable of writing a good old-fashioned episode of The Simpsons. There's creative people in high school that could write an episode of what you think you're writing. And don't get me wrong. I stand with the writers. I stand with any employees that want to make a higher wage to survive. But to think that they're irreplaceable. You know, we have egos. We have egos. Teachers, we have egos. They can't possibly educate the youth without us. I don't know. Some districts are like, yeah, we can. We could probably just find some young teachers. It's a glorified daycare anyways. In the eyes of some board members or who makes decisions. I don't know. Superintendents. I just know I'm in a good union. I like that. And I know the negotiations are not contentious. 
And a lot of the teachers feel properly compensated. I don't know. I've only taught at this school for one year. I don't want to speak for everyone, but the compensation in this field, I mean, if you choose to be a teacher, you're not choosing to be rich. So in this field, if you're going to work, I'm in a good district for that. I value that. I've been impressed with the negotiating team. But who's negotiating for the writers in Hollywood? By the way, this rant's so boring. I didn't mean to talk about the writer's strike. No one's even noticing the writer's strike. What you're watching is already pre-recorded on Netflix, right? By private corporations that probably don't even have to pay the writers of those shows. We're talking about network writers? I don't know. Oh, hey, folks, can you read an article, please, before spouting off about something? I'll spout off right now about pizza. Because I'm trying to eat well, but I'd say once a week, maybe twice, my wife and I look at each other when we're planning dinner, probably on a weekend, we go, cheat? Like, cheat? Should we cheat tonight? And cheat means heavy on the carbs or even tiptoe into the world of fried foods. So like throughout the week, not a lot of carbs. We're avoiding the noodles, the breads, the rice, the tortillas. And then on the weekend, we're like, should we? We're talking about pizza, right? We're, we're just talking about pizza when we go, should we cheat? Because when you go to a pizzeria with little kids, they don't eat a lot of the pizza. I mean, I have a five and a two-year-old, little, little kids. They nibble on it like a caterpillar would nibble a leaf for an hour. You're like, all right, just give me that already. You almost give them a slice of pizza and that at the end of the meal, you get to eat whatever they left behind. It's great. It's great having little kids with their little appetites. I mean, we always try to force them to eat more, but hey, parents, we're going to inhale all the leftovers. And we know that when you go to a pizza place and you go, we'll take a large, maybe you have leftovers. There's not going to be leftovers on a cheat night. Here's why pizza's scary. I'm actually going to label pizza dangerous. First of all, it shows up everywhere, right? Most functions, little league, workplaces, holidays. You want to feed a lot of people pizzas, pizzas. Get some pizzas. But at any other restaurant, when you order a menu item, it comes already served up on a plate. The portion's predetermined. It's on your plate. You go to an Italian restaurant, you get the bolognese. They don't just give you a trough of bolognese and say, hey, it's up to you. That's up to you. Here's a big ladle. It's up to you. No, you need a chef to tell you it's not up to you. It's up to me. Here's so much food, like Jiro Dreams of Sushi, the great sushi documentary. He goes, here's how much sushi I'm going to serve you. Here's your hamachi. Here's your maguro. It's enough. Trust me, it's enough. No, there's no extras. No, we don't torch the roll at Jiro's little sushi restaurant, which looked like it was in an airport. Wasn't that weird? Did you see the movie? Did you see the documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi? Wasn't that restaurant so understated? Like all the Michelin stars, but it just looked like it was in the corner of a strip mall or some airport. And all of his workers who try so hard to make that egg dish and they cry and they train for years just to show them they could do the rice correctly. Oh my God, the world of sushi is so beautiful. There's no more beautiful food. But back to pizza, they just serve you, what, 12 slices? And I think it takes 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes for your stomach to tell your brain we're full. So there's a lot of time where you don't know you're full. Folks, this is just science. And you have a slice. You know, you order pizza with the family. They serve a big one. Oh, that melted cheese. The sourdough crust. We were at Red Boy, okay? And they had some beers on tap. And it was just us. There was a kid's room with toys. This is the Red Boy and Ignacio. Hey, parents, if you're local, trust me. The Red Boy and Ignacio, it's a secret. Get in there when there's no little party going on. You get your whole room. There's TV. There's multiple TVs so you can watch sports and the kids can watch SpongeBob or something. There's endless toys and games. And then... One waiter just brings the biggest pizza. You have a slice. You have another slice. 
and you make it look like you're just going to start another slice. You have another slice. That's three slices. And you go, it's the cheat night. The diet starts tomorrow. There's nothing more liberating and terrifying than saying the diet starts tomorrow because that means you're about to gouge. That means you're about to plow to the point where you don't know what's going to happen to the toilet at 3 a.m. You start shoving food in your You get so excited about saying, hey, it's a cheat night. The diet starts tomorrow. <laughs> you laugh it off with your wife. The diet starts tomorrow. Then you have a fourth slice. And then as you're walking to your car with the takeout, you kind of just slip another slice in your mouth. You just start chewing it. You're like, I'll, I'll spit it out. I'll spit it out. Like my Doug Brokale story, the old Padres pitcher who couldn't eat pizza, but he still liked to chew the pizza. I get it, Doug, but I ate the pizza. And by the time I came home, I think I was blind. I actually don't remember having sight that night. I think I ate myself into a state of blindness, so I was down a sense. I still had tactile, I still had my sense of feel. I think I still had smell. Uh, hearing was totally decreased, but that amount of slices, what are, you, what are we doing with pizza? That's not, that's not how a menu item should be, and no one wants to go to a pizzeria where it's by the slice. No, we all like to see the round pie just for the entrance, right? If you ever ordered fajitas at a Mexican restaurant, you wouldn't want them to actually do it for you. You want all the ingredients in front of you. You want to see the big dish coming at you at a restaurant, and you don't want small and you don't want medium because what's happened to sizes? I'll tell you what's happened to sizes. A current large pizza is a medium from the 80s. It's like if you go to a, get a McChicken at McDonald's right now, go get a McChicken at McDonald's right now. It's not as big as the McChickens I grew up with in the 80s and the 90s. That's my favorite menu item at McDonald's. I've been to McDonald's pretty recently because my daughters love it, and that's an affordable way to treat your daughters to some toys. Right now, they're giving Prince Eric, and when you give a little girl Prince Eric, of all the Little Mermaid characters, what the fuck are you doing, McDonald's? Prince Eric? These girls have to play with Prince Eric? No, just Ariel. Ariel or Ariel? How do you pronounce the lead character? Or give him an Ursula, who I believe is played by Melissa McCarthy. My five-year-old's never been to the movie theater. I think I'm going to take her this summer. We're going to do it. Little Mermaid, Melissa McCarthy, Javier Bardem is in it. Have you seen No Country for Old Men? Is that him? Is that him? Javier Bardem, where he just has that like cattle prod and he's just killing people? What a movie. Tommy Lee Jones, but Javier Bardem, is he King Triton? King Triton, who wants his daughter to stay in the sea. You stay in the ocean. You don't marry a prince with his human genitals. You stay in the ocean, King Triton. I don't know. Is that how King Triton talks? Probably. God damn it. Prince Eric, get the fuck out of the sea. My Ariel is not going to be. So they're giving Prince Eric at McDonald's, but the McChicken is so much smaller. It's too small. And our appetites aren't smaller. But this is simple capitalism. No, I don't know how I could relate that to capitalism. But I saw that the A's had a big crowd yesterday because the fans are so upset. The fans are so upset in Oakland. If you're an A's fan right now, that means you have a defeated mentality. You've been suffering for too long, but you also have an incredible history. A's history is amazing because they've had some of the greatest players ever. They've had some of the greatest teams ever. And they do have good fans, but for the most part, it's empty. It's empty in Oakland, but they wanted to send ownership a message last night. And it was kind of cool. They said, how about a reverse boycott where we all get in the stadium, the true fans, we all come to the game against the Rays, and we just let the owners know for nine innings how much we fucking hate them. And I was thinking, this is the actual plot to Major League, trying to lose. Ownership has been so terrible for so long constantly floating the idea of we're moving the team, we're moving the team. Constantly letting your big names and your all-stars go to other teams and not paying anyone and not making the ballpark in any way a family-friendly environment. They haven't added any amenities, no accoutrement. There's nothing happening at an A's home game beyond the dot race. I hope they're still doing the dot race. 
but I haven't been to a game in a while. I'm going to go this year. I'm going to go on GameTime.co and sit in the first three rows for 12 bucks. I'm doing it. But I thought to myself, Major League, maybe La Bamba, but Major League of all movies I've ever seen, I've seen it more than any other movie. I've probably seen La Bamba over 50 times, and that means I've cried over 50 times. Every time you watch La Bamba, you got to cry. When Bob runs, you know what I'm about to say, when Bob runs to the fence and screams Richie, but I'm talking about Major League. When I used to watch that with Rick every day after school, we're watching Major League. And this is before you had any, you know, porn on the internet. I'll say it. So you had to fast forward to the scene where they got the big cardboard cutout of the owner, but even that's not a nude scene. When you're young, hey, you got to find it where you can find it. There's tassels, okay? There's tassels, so it's not even fully nude, but the whole team gets excited about it. There's a lot of sexual harassment in pretty much every 80s and 90s movie. Even watching Seinfeld last night with my wife, it was the episode where George can't have an assistant that's attractive because he's actually telling them, I won't be able to work, so I can't hire you. And that was Seinfeld in the late 90s, and at the time, I'm just like, that's George. And I'm like, whoa, I looked at my wife last night, I was like, Seinfeld has moments like this? Like, just pure sexual harassment in the workplace? She's like, yeah, I guess so. Guess so. I mean, the show's still good, but some of these characters, you're like, oh, ooh, ooh, that did not age well. So the plot to Major League, I've realized that as a kid, as I was just fast forwarding to the cardboard cutout and the tassels, as a kid, I don't think I fully understood the plot. I'm going to read the plot from Wikipedia right now because the A's game last night got me thinking about this. How could there actually be an ownership team, an owner, an owner that wants to lose, wants to lose and wants to make the home game experience as shitty as he can. Well, the recipe was already created in the world of fiction, but hey, sometimes fiction becomes reality. And are they just going to remake Major League soon? Don't we need some AI creating better sports movies? So here's the plot, according to Wikipedia, of one of the best movies of all time, Major League, starring Charlie Sheen, Wesley Snipes, Tom Berenger, even Bob Euchre's in it, just a bit outside. So here we go. It says, former Las Vegas showgirl Rachel Phelps inherits the Indians. I didn't get that. I didn't know she was a showgirl. And, you know, I'm probably like 10, 11, 12 years old watching this movie, but I don't remember that part. She gets the team from her deceased husband. Kind of remember that part. She instructs the team executives to fire the entire team and replace them with aging and rookie players, revealing to her general manager, Charlie Donovan, that she intends to move the team to Miami by exploiting an escape clause in their contract with the city of Cleveland. If their season attendance falls below a certain point, she can terminate the lease early. Therefore, she plans to create the worst team in the major leagues, starting with the hiring of Lou Brown, a veteran manager manager of the AAA Toledo Mudhens, who's presently running a tire store. Oh my Lord. That is a good plot. She's trying to move the team to Miami. I don't think I picked up on that as a kid. I was really into Pedro Serrano, hats for bats, keep them warm. I was really into Charlie Sheen, wild thing, Rick Vaughn. I didn't know what the California Penal League was, that he was a convict. You know, when you're little, you don't make sense of the plot. You're just like, that scene's fun when... Wesley Snipes comes on the field in his pajamas because they moved his bunk bed onto the field because I don't even think he's supposed to be on the team. And then he wins the race, and they're like so impressed with his time that he wins the race in his pajamas that were like, get him a uniform. And that's fiction. But it wasn't fiction. The A's owner is actually trying to have the worst attendance because he's planning to move the team to Vegas, and it won't be difficult to rip the Band-Aid off. It's like the Raiders. When the Raiders went to Vegas... I actually went to their last game against the Jaguars, their last home game. It was depressing. It wasn't so much like, oh, how sad. Raiders are leaving. You just knew all these fans are going to still be Raiders fans. 
Some of them are going to go out to Vegas for eight home games a year. The owner didn't give a shit. He didn't feel any nostalgic pull to the fans. He was just like, we're on to bigger and better things. Double middle finger to the crowd. It was like the ugliest parting of ways. It was a bad breakup with Oakland for the Raiders. And it's even uglier for the A's because they keep drawing up these stadium plans. That's just show. The owners are never, ever going to be able to keep the team here. But there's so many good fans that are just getting beat up and battered and bruised every year. How could you be an A's fan? Of all teams in sports, how could you actually still be an A's fan? The owners are begging you not to be A's fans. And I was the biggest A's fan. My earliest memories? Are you kidding me? Terry Steinbach, Mark McGuire, Mike Gallego, Walt Weiss, Carney Lansford. I want to be a sports radio host in the late 80s. I would love to in the Bay Area. Do you know how much content there was? The A's and Giants playing in that earthquake series. The Niners were amazing. Late 80s Niners, amazing. The Warriors. The Warriors were an NBA team. It's about all I could say. Bring it in Ralph Sampson to take up some room in the paint. With a young Chris Mullen developing his alcohol dependency as the season progresses. So not great for the Warriors in the late 80s. Not so great. But still Bay Area. The Sporting Green. That was the best sports section ever. Think about how much content was happening here. Will Clark, Matt Williams, Joe Montana. Pre-Sharks, which is fine with me. I've never watched an ice hockey game on television in my life, but I've been to a few, and that might be the best live sport. NHL Live, incredible. Appreciate the athleticism of everything happening. Just so electric on TV. What happens? What happens on TV? What other sport is that exciting in person? And on TV, it's truly just paint drying. It's so impossible to watch. That's just for me. I don't mean to project my tastes onto you, you hockey fans who are disagreeing with me. What are we talking about? Pizza? I don't think we got to anything, which is good. I think we needed a non-heavy episode, didn't we? It got a little heavy with the mold and the displacement and the remediation. And we're still doing it. We're still in it, but we're reading enough quotes. We're reading enough motivational quotes. Like, you can't control the rain, but you got to learn how to dance in the rain. You know, quotes like that. Like, you can't control the waves in the ocean, but you could learn to surf. And you go, huh, okay, that applies. Googling your motivational quotes every day. Yeah, that applies. That certainly applies. Yeah. You know, face your fears and reach the mountaintop. You, oh, okay. That, that, that one applied. Yeah, that, that one I really applied. I love Googling quotes because they make you feel good for three seconds. And that's really all you need. No one ever has a good quote and they just feel it all the time. You could think about your favorite quote, your favorite inspiring motivational quote Makes you feel good for what? Less than a minute, but at least you went through the motions of seeking some help by Googling some motivational, inspirational quote. But that's therapy altogether. That's why therapy has to be a practice or meditation has to be a practice because nothing sticks. Our monkey brains, our monkey minds, we just lapse back into our own anxious feelings. We always need to constantly remind ourselves that we could be resilient, that we bounce back. The human condition is to bounce back. We've seen people who've truly struggled and they have some bounce backs. And it happens. And there's going to be darkness again soon and there's going to be some softening and lighthearted joy coming soon. And it's all just going to be packaged in a curveball. No, a fastball from Wild Thing Rick Vaughn just a bit outside and thrown right down the middle. And it's up to us. Can we hit it? 
Oh, look, I'm trying to make a profound point. You know, it's all the yin-yang, the heavy, the light, the tough, challenging stuff, and then the joy and the humor, and it's all packaged together into one baseball coming down the pike, and can you hit it? And when it comes your way, what are you going to do with it? All right, that's the episode. What episode is this? I'm actually going to grab my phone and look. I know it's 213, 214, or 215. My brain ain't right right now. All right, hold on. Okay, so this is 214. We just did 214. We just wasted some time together. That feels good. Thanks for being with me. Thanks for dropping a nice rating or review on iTunes. Thanks for telling a friend. I'm not promoting this anywhere on the old socials. I've gotten some emails, actually. It's probably spam from people that say, hey, can I help you promote the podcast? I'm like, I'm not sure that's why I do it. I'm not sure I'm into that. I like this little niche. Niche, niche, how do you pronounce it? I like what we got going. We're family. We meet once a week, maybe once every two weeks. I say we, because you're with me right now. We're with each other. We know what to expect, right? We know what's going to happen with each episode, I think. I don't know. By the way, I should reveal this. The whole thing you just heard was AI. That was all AI. There's a new program where I just record my voice saying... 70 words and then i say do a podcast that makes me sound neurotic sometimes funny sometimes serious sometimes attempting to be eloquent and deep and sometimes going lighthearted. and then just let's do a half hour so this was not a human you just listened to ai this whole time i'm just kidding or am i i'm just kidding or am i You'll never know. It's indecipherable. Pull the wool. Pull the wool. This is the big aha moment. Episode 214. You didn't know it was coming. Every episode was AI. Josh Rosenberg is not even a person. Josh Rosenberg is a character that the software program created. You think you've met Josh Rosenberg in person? No. That's an actor who spent 41 years convincing people he was Josh Rosenberg. But really, his name is Gary. Yaakov, Yaakov Thurgood, and I don't get it, I don't get what I'm saying anymore, I lost it, shit, all right, I'll just get out of here, um, but it's real, I'm a real human, just kidding, I felt, the, I actually felt the need to say just kidding, I've never said that, I, I never say just kidding on the podcast, but that got a little weird, right, is this AI, because you don't know, some of you that truly don't know me, this could be, that's what AI could do nowadays, AI could do a fake podcast, make it sound like a human, oh, so just kidding, just kidding, Episode 214 is <laughs> The Bugs. I'll talk to you soon.